Good evening, everyone. Welcome to our weekly Soul of the Parsha class. We are now entering the Parsha of Chayei Sarah, the life of Sarah. And our topic for today is how does Judaism view the material world, by which I mean nature, the body, uh, corporeality, the mundane reality, and also how it views femininity, and how are these two issues, these two topics, are so related, so connected to one another. So that's our topic for, for this week. Uh, now, generally speaking, the portion of Chayei Sarah is uh, our farewell to Abraham and Sarah. And also, in a way, the passing of the torch from Abraham and Sarah to Yitzchak and Rivka. In what way is it the passing of the torch? Most of the parasha deals with Yitzchak and Rivka. It's the story tells in great detail about how the, their match was made, how they met one another, and how it all came about, and the story is told twice in great detail. Um, however, the beginning is very much about Abraham and Sarah, the first Aliyah, and this year we're focusing on the first Aliyah, and what we can glean out of it. And... Um, and also, the end of the parasha tells us about uh, Abraham's passing and what happened to him after, after Sarah's passing. So, although the, 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 the parasha as a whole is, is about Yitzchak and Rivka, it definitely absolutely starts, and we say we bid farewell to both Abraham and Sarah. And especially uh, important here is, of course, Sarah, because this, the whole parasha is named after her. And in the very, very beginning, so just, just to get a, an idea of where we're at, the first portion tells the story of Sarah passing away, and then Abraham buying the, the cave, the burial cave, in which he buries her from Ephron, and taking care of, of, the, uh, of the burial. And that's, that's what happens in the first portion. But just looking at the first two verses, we already find ourselves... Uh, addressing a very basic tension. And the tension is that the very first verse repeats the phrase Sarah's life twice. And that's the name of the parasha, and it also appears twice in the verse. So the verse is, I'll first read it in Hebrew, then in English, In English, Sarah's life came to 100 years and 20 years and 7 years. These were the years of Sarah's life. So it starts and ends with Sarah's life. So it very much puts the emphasis on her life. And this whole portion, this whole parsha is called Sarah's life. But at the, the very next verse, second verse of the parsha, she passes away. So she remains deceased throughout the parsha, except the first verse. So the tension here is that we're talking about her demise, and her, her body re is returned to the, to the ground. On the other hand, it appears as if she's alive throughout the parasha. And in many ways we can say that the whole story of Yitzchak and Rivka and them coming together is all through the merit of Sarah. It was through her life's work that she uh, was able to bless her son Yitzchak to, to meet Rivka. And her spirit, so to speak, hovers over the entire parasha. So we have several uh, hints or insinuations that her life is, continues after her death. The first is that this whole parasha is called 
Sarah's life. The second is that we can say that it's her legacy, that through one's legacy, one uh, remains alive after one's death. And in a deeper, more Kabbalistic or mystical way, we can say that this alludes to life after death, that the death, death isn't really the end of the story, that the death of the body is, is, is for the soul, the beginning of the, of the posthumous journey. And also, in an even deeper way, about the, the fate of the body to be resurrected. That even the body itself isn't really dead. And here we're really getting close to what I want to focus on this evening. The idea that the body isn't really dead. That on the surface, it appears that death is the end of the body. That the body is transient, that the body is fleeting, that the body is just a house for the soul. But the idea that this portion opens with the death of Sarah's body, but is called the life of Sarah, which again suggests the idea that she somehow survives her own death, or that her soul carries on, or her legacy carries on, but also suggests, and there are, and these Kabbalistic interpretations exist, that the body itself uh, is still lives in a way, that there is a residue of life left in the body. And this, in fact, is the reason that Jews bury their dead. Because we know that in the East, and, and they think it's far more spiritual, they don't preserve the body, they burn the body. And in India, this is all over the place, you see this in India, you see this on the Ganges River, and in many traditions, uh, many Christians do this, they burn the body, because in a way the body doesn't really matter, and you get rid of it. But Jews, for it's very important for Jews to bury the body, because that we believe in the resurrection of the body, in the, in the Messianic times. The resurrection of the body means the body isn't really fully, absolutely, 100% dead. There's a residue of life, and the body remains. There's also this very interesting idea that for righteous people, for tzaddikim and tzaddikot, like Sarah, the body does not decay. And there are actual stories about uh, bodies of righteous people who were dug up for some reason, maybe because they had to be moved, and they, they, they saw that, the, incredibly, the body did not decay. Because they were able to elevate the body to such a degree that the body did not decay. So the idea is that on the surface we look at death as the end of the body, and then the body decays. And even if we imagine something like resurrection, it's the body recreating itself in some way, or is, you know, assumes flesh and, and skin, etc. But the idea, the deep idea of, of looking at the parsha in this way is that the body dies, but the life goes on. Again, many ways to look at this, but one way is that the body itself remains alive after it's dead, which means there's more to the body than what it seems. That there's more to the body, not just to the soul, than meets the eye. Obviously there's more to the soul than meets the eye. The soul is part of God, the soul is spiritual and divine, and so on. But the idea is that here the death isn't the death of the body isn't really the death of the, it's not the end of the body. The body is more than what it appears. So this is just an introduction. Now, we want to start out with taking a very famous uh, interpretation uh, on this situation of Abraham mourning for Sarah, because it's described that he takes her 
to Kiryat uh, Arba, which is Hebron. We, let's just read the second verse of the Parsha, because that's what we want to focus on. So the second verse says, I'm just going to read the English one. Sarah died in Kiryat Arba. Kiryat Arba means the city of four. And there are several explanations for what it means. Maybe it refers to the four uh, couples who are buried there. Uh, he's later on in history, right? Right, right now it's not yet the, the situation. But later on it's, it, it houses the, the tombs of Adam and Eve and of Abraham and Sarah, and of Yitzchak and Rivka, and of Yaakov and Leah. And another explanation is that it used to belong to four primordial giants. And here we're going to get another interpretation. Anyway, it's called the City of Four, and then it's given another name, which is Hebron, of course, the city of Hebron, Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And the, the end of the verse is, And Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to cry for her. So, the Zohar takes this image and gives us a very, very beautiful interpretation. But it doesn't start with this image. It starts with a verse from Song of Songs. And the verse from Song of Songs talks about... Song of Songs is, of course, a, a, very, it's a long romantic dialogue between a man and a woman, a, a male lover and a female lover. It's a couple. And it's, a, it's this love song that goes between them. And then at some point, the, the woman says... I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, or I, I, I put you under an oath. If you find my lover, my, the male counterpart, the lover, please tell him that I am sick with love. Sheholat Ahavani. That's a very famous verse from Song of Songs. Hear me, or I, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my lover, my lost lover, please tell him that I am sick with love, lovesick. And then uh, the Zohar explains that this woman now, it's the soul. The soul is like this feminine figure, and the soul is, is speaking to other souls. These are the daughters of Jerusalem. It's righteous souls that are going into the heavenly Jerusalem, the Jerusalem in the, in, in the heavens. So the, it's the soul, e each and every soul, speaking to the other souls that are already in heaven. And, and he's telling them, if you find my lover, tell him that I am lovesick. And, but then it gives several interpretations to what is the lovesickness. And also, more interestingly, to who is the lover. So the first interpretation that the Zohar says, is that the lover is God. The soul is, the, the woman is the soul, and the man is God. And then, it, and then the lovesickness is interpreted in two ways that are opposite, but they're really complementary. They really go together. One is that I'm lovesick, meaning I'm longing for God. I was in a body, now I'm, I'm coming out of the body, and I'm going back to God, and I'm look, or maybe I'm still in the body, but I'm looking for God, and I'm lovesick because I, I miss God. The soul sings to the heaven, to the souls that are in heaven. Tell God if you find God up there, tell him that I'm sick with love, and I long for God, and I miss God. Another interpretation, still going along with the idea that the male lover here in the verse is God. 
The second interpretation of the love sickness is that it's a negative sickness, is that I be, I, because I used the, the power of love, I, I channeled it into this worldly uh, things, that I followed the lures of the body and the physical enjoyment and all this, I, it made me ill in a negative way. I became sick because I misdirected my love. Instead of loving God, I regret spending my days on whatever food or drink or physical pleasures. And this made me sick. So it's two opposite interpretations, but they, they really go absolutely together. I'm, I, because when I channel my love into mundane things, I become ill in a negative way. But then if I channel my love in a, where I should channel it, which is as, as love of God, then I become lovesick in a, in a positive way. Not sick out of negative love, negatively sick out of negative love, but positively sick like homesick, like lovesick, like the regular usage of lovesick uh, towards God. Anyway, both of these interpretations apply to the what we call the run of the soul. Right? There's a run of the soul and a return of the soul. The run of the soul is the urge of the soul to come out of the body and reunite with God. And this movement of running of, of longing for God, it has two sides to it. Uh, a positive love sickness, longing for God, and a regret over, which is the negative sickness, a regret over misdirecting my love to mundane things. And it's the two sides of tshuva, it's the two sides of re re remembering God. But then, suddenly, the Zohar gives us a totally different interpretation. So the, the woman is still the soul, but the interpretation of who the male lover, who the, 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 the groom is, totally changes, and it, it absolutely flips. And the second interpretation is that the loved one is the body, not God. It's absolutely the opposite of what we just uh, what we just said. The other, the second interpretation is that we're not talking about the soul as it's still in the body or is now coming out of the body and returning to God and is expressing how much it missed God and how much it regrets uh, over-identifying with the body. According to the second interpretation, the soul is now out of the body and it's now reuniting or has reunited with God and it's lovesick for the body. It misses being with the body. So here the lover isn't God. The, soul, the, the, the woman is still the soul, but the man isn't God. The man is the body. And the soul misses the body. She wants to reunite with the body. It's really, re of course, this is, it wants to be resurrected. It's boring to be in heaven with all the other souls. So this, the, the soul is talking to all these daughters of Jerusalem, the other souls, and it's telling them, if you're able to find my, my lover, my body, somewhere down there, tell my body, if you're able to communicate with my body, that I miss him, 
I miss my body so much, I want to go back to being in my body. So it's beautiful and amazing as it is that the Zohar gives us these two interpretations. However, how does the Zohar uh, justify this whole uh, second, more revolutionary interpretation? It uses the opening to our Parsha. It says, Abraham and Sarah are, respectively, the soul and the body. Abraham is the soul. Sarah is the body. When the verse speaks about Sarah being buried in Kiryat Arba, the city of Four, which is Hebron, says the Zohar, what do these two names allude to? The city of Four refers to the body being made up of the four classical elements of earth, water, fire, and air, that all of the ancients uh, adopted this uh, cosmological idea. And it's it's only the body that's made up of these elements because the level, the spiritual realms are made up of a fifth element. So the four elements are corporeal elements. So Kiryat Arba, the city of four, means that it's talking about the body that's made up of four elements. And Hebron, the second name, Hebron, means connected. And the idea is that when the body is alive, the four elements are connected. But now that the soul leaves the body, that they're separated, the body begins to decay and the four elements fall apart. The, the body disintegrates, the body decays. And, and, the, and because Abraham is mourning Sarah and is crying over Sarah, this is like the soul saying, it's the song of songs, I'm lovesick, for the body, right? There's a connection made between the, the soul being lovesick for her male lover, and this is uh, correspondent to Abraham, who is now symbolic of the soul, who represents the soul now, uh, mourning or longing or missing his wife Sarah, who is now the body. Now, of course, you can see that there's a, a gender swap that's going on here, right? Because in the Song of Songs, the soul is feminine and the body is masculine. But when we're talking about Abraham and Sarah, it's the, it's the very opposite. It's Abraham, the male, is the soul, and Sarah, the female, is the body. So this is very interesting in and of itself. Now, this is what we want to now start to understand. How can the body and the soul be described in these two contradictory ways that one is that the soul can be both male and female and the body can be both male and female either way it, it can't go together it can't be that they're both male or they're both female because there's a marriage of soul and body so they have to be male and female but it ha but it, but they could but in in one place the soul is the body, and the and the, the and the the so the soul is male, and the body is female. And the other place, the soul is female, and the body is male. Now it should be noted that the image that's in the parsha, not in the Song of Songs, of Abraham being the soul and Sarah being the body, is the more 
uh, uh, well-known and the more, more often repeated and the more, let's say, classical representation of the relationship between the spiritual and the material, not just in Judaism, but the world over. That in all over the world, and this is we can absolutely see this in Greece, and we're going to focus about this a little bit, that the physical realm was identified as female, and the spiritual realm was identified as male. Now, of course, this uh, strikes many, many, many people today as being very sexist or being misogynistic. And this is exactly what we want to have a deeper understanding for and to, and to, and to really, really get the depth of it. So here, we don't have the fear of, this, of sexism and misogyny because on, we're, the Zohar tells us at the very start that, we can, that both are true. That if, if it was only that uh, the body is feminine and the soul is masculine, then we could say, oh, so you're saying that men are spiritual and women are physical or something like this. And no, because we have the exact opposite image as well. But still, it's a, if I remain with this, it's a bit of a cop-out. And we have to figure out the focus on the image of Abraham being the soul and Sarah being the body, because that's the more classical uh, structure of the way, you know, all, all of the Kabbalistic thinking works with correspondences. So you have things being likened to other things. So the idea that the, the body and materiality, corporeality is more feminine is, is far more widespread than the opposite image. What's really revolutionary in the Zohar is that in the Song of Songs, the, the, the soul is described as female and the body is described as male. That's revolutionary. That's what we have to figure out. But it's, it, it's based on the more classical understanding of, again, the body being feminine, the soul being masculine. So we, we, I don't want to go around this. And I want to figure this out. So I'll, first I'll say that I dedicated the whole class to this exactly this week, one year ago which is the Soul of the Parsha class for Chayei Sarah last year. And the video is called The Reconstruction of Gender, something like this, or of Gender Roles, and you can look it up on YouTube. And I try to give it a deep under explanation for why it's not sexist or misogynist to suggest that there is a, an, a, an, a, an, a, an affinity between femininity and and, and the physical realm, and masculinity, and the spiritual realm. And, and, and just saying one sentence, because the whole video, but one sentence is that, of course, every man and woman have a body and a soul, that goes without saying, but we can absolutely say that women partake in, in the physicality of procreation to a greater extent than men because they have the monthly period, because they have pregnancy, and because they have, they breastfeed the child, and because of all of these reasons, they're more connected to the realm of physicality than men are. So it's not a question of one being more spiritual than the other, because they're both spiritual and they're both physical. It means, it, it means that there is good reason for why femininity is associated with physicality and vice versa. Um, now, 
in order to really get a good understanding of this and and really understand where the where I'm really going to with this uh, with this class, is that we want to figure out why is the idea that femininity is connected to or is associated or corresponds to or is parallels to physicality more than masculinity, why is it even considered to be sexist or misogynistic? And I think the reason for this is very simple, and it has to do with what I call the Greco-Christian heritage. So I have to explain this term. In the academic world, and beyond it, there's a very wide, very widely known, very widespread concept called the Judeo-Christian heritage. The Judeo-Christian heritage talks about some very fundamental ideas that appear in Judaism, and then later on also appear in Christianity, because Christianity is based off Judaism, and it takes a lot of Jewish ideas and, and carries on with them into Christianity. And, of course, it sees itself as a continuation or in a, a uh, fulfillment of, of Judaism. And, and this is contrasted with pagan ideas, which ideas which that don't come from either Judaism or Christianity. Uh, for example, the Greek world uh, being very much uh, uh, worshipping nature, for example. So the pagan world would worship nature, but both Jews and Christians don't worship nature. Or the pagan world is polytheistic, but Judaism and Christianity are both monotheistic. And so then when you you put the accent on what Judaism and Christianity have in common, you can absolutely contrast them to the pagan or barbaric or non, non-Jewish non or Christian or polytheistic world. So this is a very well-known concept, the Judeo-Christian heritage. However, we should remember that this is a very Christian concept also, because uh, Christianity sees itself as the continuation and fulfillment of Judaism. And this term uh, blurs or hides the fact that there are also very, very major differences between Judaism and Christianity. And not only are there differences, but the, those issues in which Christianity differs from Judaism, in, in regarding those issues, Christianity is more a continuation of some elements of Greek culture than it is a continuation of Judaism. So if we're talking about those elements, we should rather be speaking of a Greco-Christian heritage. Not There is a, a Jewish, a Judeo-Christian heritage or a Jewish-Christian heritage. There are elements that Christianity took from Judaism. This is why Maimonides says that Christianity paves the way towards the Messianic days, because it does take some real elements from Judaism and, and uh, spreads them around the world. But the other elements in which Christianity is different, we should call those elements, we should refer to them as a Greco-Christian heritage. And one of the elements, and maybe the most prominent element, of this Greco-Christian heritage, you won't find this term on Google, because it doesn't exist, because people because it's ruled, academia is, is ruled by people who come from a Christian background, or who have joined this post-Christian uh, secular discourse. But it absolutely is a real thing, this Greco-Christian heritage. And the most prominent element of it is a, a, is a worldview that negates physicality, that wants to repress physicality, 
to a certain extent, and sometimes to a very radical extent. And it doesn't come from the parts of Greek culture that were all about the body and nature. It comes from other elements in Greek culture, main, namely Greek philosophy, and especially Platonic philosophy. Platonic philosophy was all about a love of spiritual ideas or forms, and about the desire of the philosopher to free himself from the physical body and to unite with the Logos, which is the spiritual essence, intellectual essence of God, according to Greek philosophy. And the idea is that there's, and, and the, the goal of the philosopher, according to Plato, was to release himself from the body. The body was a prison, the body was a jail. And the philosopher's goal was to free himself from the body and to never return via resurrection to this world. Same as in the in, in Oriental religions. That the ultimate goal is never to be resurrected again. The very opposite of the ideal of resurrection in Judaism. And in Christianity took this idea and also the ideal, the, the monastic ideal, the ascetic ideal of living in a monastery and never marrying. This is a totally non-Jewish idea. You can't talk about a Judeo-Christian ideal of living as a monk and never marrying, because Judaism is absolutely against this. So this is not a Judeo-Christian idea, it's a Greco-Christian idea. It comes from Greek philosophy, it's carried over to Christianity, and Christianity suddenly makes it an ideal to never marry. So Protestantism took a step backwards. But, but classical Catholic Christianity went along with this very, very uh, uh, powerfully. So the idea is that, and, and, and now, since in Greek philosophy and Greek culture, physicality was associated with femininity, just like in Judaism, the, in, these, in this respect they go together, but the, the way physicality and femininity were treated were absolutely different. In the, in the Greco-Christian heritage, both physicality and femininity that was associated with it were seen as something to be repressed, as something to be put down, as something that is, we need to elevate ourselves above it. So they did create at some point the monastic ideal for women, that women also had their monasteries and they became nuns and they didn't marry. But the idea was that they had to repress their femininity in order to do so. Because femininity was still associated absolutely with physicality. So the, there is definitely a, a, in Western civilization, a very powerful uh, ascetic, that is body-negating streak, and it goes together with a very uh, solid patriarchal streak, which is which wants to say that women are are uh, again they they're part of this physical realm that we need to transcend. And I, this could be demonstrated in many many areas. And just to give a, 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 a tiny uh, feel for how physicality and femininity were connected, we can see this in the Latin term for matter, the word, the English word matter comes from the Latin word matil, which means mother. Mother and matter are linguistically connected because they were uh, associated as one another. There was the body and the, 
and uh, matter and form. Matter was feminine, form was masculine, and so on. So again, in the Greco-Christian heritage, the ideal was that we should escape from the physical realm, which means we should be aspire to be disembodied souls, and just to be to to identify with the masculine level or realm of things. Now, in the Jewish uh, tradition, not the Judeo-Christian, the Jewish tradition, as opposed to the Greco-Christian, we have something far more complicated. On the one hand, we do see a form of this hierarchy. We do see the idea that one has to uh, have the soul govern the body. We do see the idea that one shouldn't uh, be infatuated with the body or worship the body or worship nature. And we saw this in the first uh, interpretation of the Zohar that spoke about the lovesickness should, that should, it should only be directed to God and, and love for the body is seen as creating a negative kind of sickness. So it, it absolutely exists and it was there in the first interpretation of the Zohar. It absolutely exists in Judaism. But there are now two very important buts to be added. If you just look at this, this would appear to go together with Christianity or with the Greek philosophy, and you can you can pull this in together with the with the idea of the Judeo-Christian heritage. But but now we have two important buts, and the two important buts is that there are many many different ideas that all come together to suggest one big idea, which is that ultimately the body and the physical realm in general are higher in essence than the soul and the spiritual level. That although it appears that the soul is superior to the body, that the world to come is superior to this world, that spirituality is superior to physicality, if you go down to the essence of them, it flips. And the essence of the body and the essence of this world and the essence of physicality become higher than the essence of the soul and the world to come and spirituality. And this is one but, one caveat. And the second caveat is that there is a whole concept in Kabbalah which talks about the rise of femininity in history. This is something I teach about and speak of in many occasions. And I have this whole book that I wrote about this. And the idea is that there is a, according to Kabbalah, according to the Ari, history is, 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 has a, di a direction. And part of the direction of history is that it, it traces the trajectory of the rise of femininity. And the rise of femininity is also the refinement of the body. So again, two caveats, two buts. The first but, that the body in essence is higher than the soul. Second but is that this, is, this isn't static, it's dynamic. And both the body and femininity are constantly being refined and are rising and will ultimately reach a, a, a state in which the body is so refined and femininity is so high that they re they reflect the idea that the essence of physicality, which now also becomes the essence of femininity, is higher than the essence of spirituality and masculinity. And the roles are reversed. And now it's the it's the 
the phys- physicality and femininity teaching, bestowing wisdom upon spirituality and masculinity. And this is really the solves the riddle of how the soul and the body can be addressed once as the the body being feminine and the soul being masculine, Sarah and Abraham, and then as as the, the swapping gender roles, the body suddenly being the masculine, the lover, the male lover, and the soul being feminine, the woman, the female lover. And the idea is simply that the Abraham and Sarah image re- reflects the classical relationship between spirituality and physicality, in which uh, uh, the teacher, the mashpia, the bestower, the influencer, the, the giver, the teacher, is the soul, and this is why it's masculine. Right In Kabbalah, masculine is identified with mashpia, bestowing, and feminine is identified with being the vessel that receives, being a, a, the giver and the receiver. So, in the classical relationship, who is the giver? That is the male. It's the soul. And who is the receiver? The feminine. That is the body. This is why the soul is likened to Abraham and the, soul, and the body is likened to Sarah. But when the soul comes out of the body and it rises and rises, and all of history is, is the body rising, and so when the soul comes out of so sorry, when the body uh, dies and they're separated, and the sorry, the body is elevated and raised, suddenly it's all reversed. And now the soul becomes the recipient, and this is when the song of songs, the soul is feminine. And the body, because it's now so elevated, because we're talking about the, the ideal of messianic resurrection, the body is so elevated, the body becomes the male, that is the mashpia, the bestower, the giver, the teacher. The body teaches the soul. So, uh, we can see this in the story of Abraham and Sarah, and we can see this in some very basic Hasidic ideas. So in the story of Abraham and Sarah, how do we see uh, this reversal of roles? It was here in the, the previous parsha. In the previous parsha, right, in this parsha we're told, the Zohar tells us, that Sarah is like the body and Abraham is like the soul. But in the previous parsha we were told that as they were aging, in the, in the last years of their lives, after Yitzchak was born, their roles were absolutely reversed. And God told Abraham, Heed Sarah's voice, and everything that Sarah tells you, you should do what she tells you. You should be the recipient, she should be the bestower or the teacher. You should listen to her. The idea that, which really means, Sarah becomes the male, so to speak, the mashpia, and Abraham becomes the female. It's reversed. So the, the, uh, the image from the previous parsha of Sarah rising and passing Abraham in stature, and becoming his prophet and his teacher, is really uh, the idea that in the days to come, the body is going to be refined and elevated to the point that it would teach the soul. And this is exactly what the Alter Rebbe, first Rebbe of Chabad, tells us about the, about the days to come. He tells us, right now, the body receives sustenance from the soul. How do we know this? 
that the moment the soul leaves the body, the body begins to decay. It, it, can't, it can't live anymore. The moment the soul leaves it, the body becomes motionless and then begins to decay. So the soul gives the body sustenance. However, says the Alter Rebbe, in the days to come, it's going to be reversed. And the body will give sustenance to the soul, will give inspiration to the soul. When the soul is resurrected, or it goes back into being in the body, the body will teach the soul, the body will experience things and go through experiences and will intuitively understand all kinds of things, just like we speak about feminine intuition, and this is going to teach the body. And the Alter Rebbe isn't just talking about resurrection, the Alter Rebbe is talking about, uh, really about Chasidut. Chasidut is feminine wisdom. It has to do more with the body and with day-to-day experiences, with intuitions that come from the emotional realm, which is more connected to the body. And all this is teaching the soul things that the soul can't learn just from spiritual concepts or ideas or meditation. So, the idea of the rise of the body, that the body would influence the soul, goes together with the idea of the rise of femininity. And the Alter Rebbe also speaks of this. He says that the verse... Uh, also in, in um, uh, I forgot where it's from now, but the, the, the verse that talks about the woman of valor being the crown to her husband, Eshet Chayla Teret Ba'ala, talks about the rise of the feminine and physical realm so that they become the crown that is the bestower, the teacher, the influencer of the husband. The roles are, are reversed. Um, so, so that was, it took me longer than I thought, uh, because we haven't gotten to, we haven't gotten to the crux of the, of the, of the shir yet. Um, but the idea is that all this leads us to a very beautiful, and I'm going to be, I'm going to have to be brief about this now because it's, it's getting late. Um, but it, it leads us to a beautiful, uh, Torah from the Baal Shem Tov. Uh, which which leads us to a, another beautiful idea that shows us a, a wonderful re- uh, illustration of this refinement of physicality and rise of femininity. So the the Baal Shem Tov takes a verse from Exodus that talks about helping the donkey of your enemy. So the verse goes, it's Exodus twenty three five. And it goes, when you see the ass or the donkey of your enemy lying under its burden, and w- and you would refrain from raising it or helping it, you would say, it's the donkey of my enemy, why should I help him? So then the Torah tells you, no, don't do this. Don't be vengeful. You must nevertheless raise it with him. Help your enemy. And raise this donkey that collapsed under its burden. Now the Baal Shem Tov says, the, the Hebrew word for donkey is chamor. Chamor, you just flip the letters around, it becomes chomer. It becomes the body. So the Baal Shem Tov says, now we should take this whole verse and we should speak about how one treats one's body. And, the, and he says, when you see your body collapsing under the burden, under the yoke of serving God, of observing Torah and commandments. The body is against you, the body is immersed in this world, the body doesn't want to cooperate. 
Then he says, um, you would think to yourself, I should refrain from helping it. Let the body collapse. Who needs the body? I'm going to serve God just with my soul. It's even maybe good that the body collapses. But then the verse tells you, don't do this. This is wrong. This is what the Greek philosophers got wrong and the Christian monks got wrong. They thought that you shouldn't help the body. The body is unimportant. The body is something to be looked down upon. Don't make this mistake, says the continuation of the verse. Raise the burden with your body together. Work with your body as a friend, not as someone who represses the body, who thinks slowly of the body. So this is a beautiful, very, very elementary Torah from the Baal Shem Tov. The text, this whole beautiful verse in and of itself, talks about helping one's, one's enemies uh, donkey when it collapses, but it tells you the enemy is your body and it isn't really your enemy. You think it's your enemy, it isn't really your enemy. Your body is is a very precious tool and it's a very precious vessel for serving God. And in fact, the whole purpose of the Torah being given to physical people and given to this realm is that we serve God with the body alongside its weaknesses. You shouldn't look down upon your body, repress it, and so on. You should work together with it and elevate it. Now, there is a Midrash, and this is, this is where we're leading up to and finishing now. There is a Midrash that tells us that there is a very holy, important donkey. Again, donkey is chamor, chamor is chomer, matter, physicality. The image of a donkey and riding a donkey is the image of refining physicality and materiality. So there is an, an amazing weird midrash that takes three donkeys in the Bible and tells us they're all one donkey. It's a midrash. It appears in Pirkei de Rabbi Eliezer, chapter 30. And it says, you remember Abraham, when Abraham went to do, in the previous parsha, he went to uh, to um, sacrifice his own child, his own son, Yitzchak. Akedat Yitzchak. Uh, he took a donkey, and he put the wood on the donkey, but then when he got to the mountain, he told to his servants, you stay with the donkey down here, and we're going to go up. Me and my son. So that donkey is the same donkey that Moses used when he came to Egypt to 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 uh, uh, bring salvation to the redemption to the Jews and save them out of coming coming out of Egypt. There's also it's described that he used the donkey, and it's the same donkey that the Mashiach will come riding, because there's a prophet that says that the Mashiach will come. He will be a poor man riding a donkey, and so it's the same donkey. It was a donkey that was created in the, in, in the first days of creation, and it's the same donkey. So, now, just looking at those three stages, Abraham's donkey, that has to do with our parsha, because he's burying Sarah and mourning for Sarah, and it has to do with physicality, and, and how he mourns and longs for the body. So, his donkey from the previous parsha, Moshe's donkey, and the, and the Messiah's donkey. So, all these three donkeys are three stages in the refining of physicality. So we'll just look very briefly. The first donkey, nobody rides it. 
is just used for carrying wood. It's just a tool for the accessories of doing a mitzvah. Abraham takes it, and he puts the wood on it, and he takes it, and then when he gets to the mountain, he says to his slaves, you sit here with the donkey. So the donkey is outside of the mitzvah, it's outside of the holy realm. It's, it, nobody rides it, nobody should, should be on it, or refine it. It's just a donkey for carrying wood. And because the refining of physicality is also the rise of femininity, where is Sarah? Nowhere to be found. She's nowhere there. This is solely a, a weird kind of male bonding between father and son. He's going to sacrifice the son, but according to Kabbalah, it's a, it's a mystical kind of bonding. And of course, he doesn't kill him in the end, and they do become very bonded. So, it's, the, Sarah isn't there. In fact, the Midrash tells us that when she heard the story of how Abraham almost killed Yitzchak, that's how she passed away. So she couldn't bear it. So it's, she's totally out of the picture. So the donkey is out of the picture, and the woman is out of the picture. Second donkey. Abraham's donkey. Uh, sorry, Moshe, Moses' donkey. Moses does put his wife and sons on the donkey. He puts them on the donkey, and he takes them to Egypt. But then suddenly they disappear. When the continuation of this, he meets Aaron, and then the continuation of the story is only, only him and Aaron. So, before this, two differences. It's not just putting wood on the donkey. He puts his, his wife, he doesn't put, he's not on the donkey, but he puts his wife and children on the donkey. At least now, it's not just for carrying wood. He puts them there because now it's, it's people riding it. It's, it, it, it the, the donkey's elevated in a way, and of course the woman is part of the journey. He doesn't leave there, leave Tzipporah with Ito, with Jethro. He, he takes her along. However, Aaron then tells him, are you crazy? We have enough Jews being slaves in Egypt. You're bringing more people to be enslaved. Tell your wife and kids to go back. So they go back because physicality isn't, hasn't risen enough, hasn't been refined enough, and femininity hasn't risen enough. They need to go back, and of course we're later told that in order for Moses to be a prophet, he needed to uh, stop being intimate with his wife. He, need to, he needed to let go of his wife altogether. But then we get to the Mashiach. The Mashiach is riding on his donkey himself. And so here, he's not just putting wood on it, he's not just putting his wife and kids, he's writing it himself, meaning he's refining the physicality, the chomer of the chamor, he's refining it himself. And we can ask, okay, but what about the woman? The woman isn't to be found, right? It's just like Abraham, who was alone without the woman. And it's just like Moses, who took the woman, but then sent her back, and then and then left her at some point, or stopped being intimate with her, meaning he, he was a bit, a bit like the Greco-Christian monk a little bit, you know, God forbid, Moses. But now we have the most important idea, which is that according to several places in the Zohar, the Mashiach will be both a man and a woman. The Mashiach will be a couple, a married couple. Not only will the Mashiach be married, for sure the Mashiach will be married, but the Mashiach will be a couple. So the idea is that when the when it's the, 
first we speak about we're speaking about Moshe. When Moshe was told, "You must, in order to be um, uh, receptive for prophecy, at each and every moment, you need to stop being intimate with your wife." Then the angels were. They said, "How can this be? It's, it's human beings. They they have to be male and female together." So God told them, "That's right." But now I want him to marry the Shekhinah, the feminine godly presence. And he needs to stop being with his wife. Is he, in a way, he's divorcing his wife, but then he has to marry the Shekhinah. But then the same Zohar says, but, but in the days when he really marries the Shekhinah, he takes the Shekhinah down, and she becomes united with his wife, and then he's, the Shekhinah will be his wife, and he's going to marry the wife. And the Zohar says in another place that um, that uh, most books, says the Zohar, most books think, uh, say, that when Moses stopped being with his wife, it was a virtue. We say, the Zohar says, it's not a virtue. The virtue is being both connected uh, to the heavens and connected to the earthly realm meaning you have to marry both the Shekhinah and your wife. And of course, the other Zohar says they should become one. But then the most dramatic Zohar says that the Mashiach's goal is to defeat the primordial snake. In Hebrew, the word Nachash, snake, and the word Mashiach, Messiah, have the same numerical value. Very simple gematria. And, the, the, and it says, because the snake caused the first man and woman to sin, he caused Eve to sin, and then he caused Adam to sin. He will only be vanquished by both a man and a woman together. It's impossible to vanquish the snake if you're just a man or just a woman. You have to be a married couple. So the famous question, uh, is, the, is the Mashiach, does he have to be a man? Maybe the Mashiach is a woman? So the answer is very simply put, the Mashiach is a married couple. has to be both. And it's not just a Mashiach riding a donkey, it's really a man and a woman, together. They're the Mashiach. And they're riding the donkey, meaning they elevate, they refine physicality together. The man bringing the more spiritual wisdom to the forefront, and the woman bringing the more physical wisdom, which is absolute wisdom, because now the body is refined. And they're both absolutely equal, and there together, they refine physicality altogether. And it all starts with Abraham and Sarah in this parasha. It starts with the Zohar's interpretation that when Abraham was mourning Sarah, it was the soul longing to be reunited with the body, and, and they, they're actually their roles are reversed in this situation. Although Abraham is the man, and Sarah is the woman, the Song of Songs tells us that once you have this longing and the body is elevated and refined, it can absolutely, it can and it does, uh, reverse. And the body becomes the, the, uh, the masculine and the soul becomes the feminine. And it's all perfectly balanced. And it's all reflected in those three donkeys that lead up from Abraham to Moses to the Mashiach.